My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. We are continuing on our series of discussions that focus on rattlesnake roundups in the southeast. And today we have a very uh, special guest, uh, Bruce Means. He is the man who wrote the book on the species that is, you know, the primary species that's the focus at these roundups. And, uh, and, and it's a phenomenal book. I encourage everybody to, to get out and read it. We'll talk about the book uh, a little bit later so everybody knows where they can find it. Um, and what we're going to talk about today are eastern diamondback rattlesnakes um, and how some of these roundups impact them. And uh, as many of you know, I'm a, a rattlesnake fanatic. They're one of my favorite things on the planet. And uh, eastern diamondback rattlesnakes are certainly, uh, you might be able to call them the king of rattlesnakes, the largest rattlesnake we have, uh, just a great icon for, for some of the ecosystems uh, that we have here in the southeastern part of, of the United States. So again, I'm excited to have, have the world expert on the species uh, here with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Bruce. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me. Look forward to having a good, vigorous discussion about our favorite animal. Yeah, no, I agree. So, uh, so I like to start off and and get a little bit of background on our individual, and and I like to go all the way back to the beginning. So, um, I, I'm just curious how you know. So, for if we think about the population as a whole you know, sometimes people think of snakes as being kind of an eccentric interest, but for us, it's, it's a pretty normal thing, but for a lot of people, it isn't. And so I like to uh, hear how my guests got into snakes, you know, was it something in their childhood? Was it something that hit them as an adult? But, but what is that story for you? How did you end up first uh, finding your interest in snakes? It's a uh, kind of an interesting story, somewhat different from that of some other folks, other people who like snakes, some of them, uh, sort of had a, almost an innate love for them from the time they were children. My experience, uh, I've thought about it quite a lot. <clears throat> I was uh, born just before World, we entered World War II in 1941. And when my dad went off to war, I was kept in a downtown Los Angeles, sort of in a penned up space between a house and a barn. I had no nothing but but sand on the on the ground so for about till I was about five years old I had no men in my life and I had no animals I had to play in this sort of in, terrible enclosure that I hated when dad came back from the war he moved us out to the Calabasas highlands in the Santa Monica mountains of Southern California and I went crazy I never went home I wandered the uh, chaparral 
extensively, and I started finding, you know, uh, lizards and scorpions and tarantulas and a few snakes, which piqued my interest. But then when I was nine years old, we migrated to Alaska, <clears throat> and my interest in creepy crawly critters, which I seem to have generated there in California, was put aside until I graduated from high school and did not want to go to school, uh, college in Alaska. Fairbanks was the only option, and he gets 60 below there every winter. So I wound up in, at Florida State University, <laughs> and as soon as I got to FSU, excuse me, <coughs> as soon as I got to FSU, I accidentally sort of linked up with a bunch of good old boys from Florida who loved snakes. And because I was an outdoors guy, I started going out with them and we started collecting on every snake you could find, all the species. I had every snake I could put in little makeshift cages I made. So I got really keenly interested in snakes. And then, uh, oh, about eight, seven, let's see, that at least 10 years later, in addition to being interested in them and knowing about them and keeping them as pets, I had no formal, uh, you know, desires to do anything. But when I got into graduate school, I got in to work on salamanders, which was really a passion. And I got my PhD on salamanders. But in the meantime, I got employed as a biologist at a wonderful place called Tall Timbers Research Station. And while I was there, <clears throat> all the biologists and all the staff would kill venomous snakes on a biological research station's grounds, <coughs> which infuriated me. I went to the uh, powers that were there and said, hey, well, you know, here we're a biological research station. Why are you allowing all these snakes to be killed? And, of course, the standard answer is, oh, well, there's no snake, but good snake, but a dead snake and all that. So I was very frustrated. I got to thinking about it. And I and so I went to the literature to find out what was available. Now this was 1976. We'll find out what was a knowledge what knowledge was available about the Eastern Diamondback, and I could find very little. Clauber had a, a section in his book on the Eastern Diamondback, but it was not from direct. It was very very sparse. I could tell that no one had really done a decent study of this marvelous big the biggest rattlesnake of all. So then it, it dawned on me, oh, wow, if I decide to engage on a, in a study of this animal, maybe that will then stop the indiscriminate killing of all the venomous snakes, including cottonmouths we had on the property. So that I inaugurated a study in 1976 of the eastern diamondback. And I uh, there's more of that story, but that got me really heavily involved uh, for eight years. I had a uh, about a 3,000-acre property on which, over that eight-year period, I marked and released 126 eastern diamondbacks. They weren't all con alive contemporaneously, but I followed them with, I, I, I was the second person to use radio transmitters studying a snake, and I used them extensively, and that all eventually led to uh, the book, which was published 40 years after I started the work. <laughs> Well, that's that's my story. That's, how uh, I get that, that's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, when and I remember when I first heard about you. What? How long were you at Tall Timbers? When did you When did you leave there? Do you remember the year? Yeah, nineteen eighty four. Uh, I I was there from uh, yeah so eighty four. Uh-huh. And uh, so similar to you, I I have had this real interest in snakes, and after I finished my undergrad and I started into graduate school, uh, I I could not find a project on snakes, and so I ended up working on salamanders as well, and I'm a you know, a huge salamander oh, yeah. fan and people know that as well. That's if I had to pick a second group, salamanders are it behind snakes. So, um, but uh, I remember I was in, I was actually working in California for a summer and I had met a woman that I, that I was dating and, and she lived in Tallahassee. And so uh, I came back with her after the summer to Tallahassee before, uh, you know, before going back to New England where I was living and uh, and I remember talking to some folks that were uh, associated with Tall Timbers when I was down there, and they were telling me about you uh, as this person working on rattlesnakes or had worked on rattlesnakes at Tall Timbers, which, you know, working with rattlesnakes was, was my dream. And uh, so that was the first time I heard about you. And I remember at that time, uh, they'd give me some documents. I can't even remember. They're almost like reports of a form that had... Uh, you know, that had some, you know, information on uh, Diamondback study down there. So anyways, that's the first time I ever heard of you was an association with the, uh, you know, Tall Timbers. And that would have been back in the 90s. Uh, so, um, yeah, you made an impact on me and, and you know, how mm-hmm. I, uh, the trajectory of my career. And then when I finished my master's on salamanders, I was, you know, just hell bent on, I need, I wanted to do my PhD on rattlesnakes and that obviously all worked out and I went out West and worked on great basin rattlesnakes. But, but anyways, well, great. That's a, um, a, a great story. And that's kind of the beginning of, of what would be just a huge legacy that, that you've had with uh, snakes and uh, with Eastern Dimebacks in particular and snakes more generally. Um, so now I'd like to take some time and kind of just dive into a discussion of like the ecology and the natural history uh, of Diamondbacks. So people have a good framework for these animals um, within the context of, you know, what's happened historically and currently with rattlesnake roundups and and festivals here in the Southeast. And why don't we, a lot of this is kind of uh, outlined in your book. So why don't we start off by uh, giving a a plug uh, for your book. And um, I encourage anybody listening to this that has any interest in snakes to go out and buy a copy of this book. Again, uh, it's, it's a, it's just a great piece of literature that documents, uh, an entire career, uh, again, of the man who, who knows the most about, uh, what is arguably the king of rattlesnakes. So, um, and it's called, uh, diamonds in the rough, but do you, uh, can you just give like the 30,000 foot couple sentence description of what the book is and, and let people know where they can go if they're interested in finding a copy? Absolutely. It, it is uh, the work of my life and the love of my life, obviously. Uh, I wrote that book in such a way to, as to be enjoyable by every reader. I mean, it's full of my original scientific information. But every chapter, I tried to make a very readable chapter so that, uh, you know, um, 
non-scientists as well as scientists would have a great great natural history read um it covers everything that i was able to discover myself plus all the literature up to 27 or 2015 maybe that had ever been published about the eastern diamondback so i tried to make it a compendium you know of all the knowledge available to that date about the the wonderful animal and uh I, uh, I, on, uh, Tall Timbers actually honored me by wanting to publish it. Tall Timbers was founded out of some really classic coil work that was done by Herbert L. Stoddard. He was one of the founders of wildlife management with Aldo Leopold. And they wanted to publish my book, which is a autoecology, you know, of a famous animal, similar to the autoecology of the quail that uh, Stoddard did. Not that I'm in Stoddard's class by any means, but uh, uh, anyway, so they did a great job. I mean, the book is, uh, you know, beautiful, slick pages, lots of color, photographs, and well-bound. And then they had it privately printed. Unfortunately, it, it's a little expensive. It's 100 bucks, and I did had wanted it to be around 50 but they had to recoup their, their, uh, their costs on it. And uh, it can be found easily on Amazon.com. Just put Bruce Means in Amazon and all my books will come up and or put uh, Diamonds in the Rough or Eastern Diamondback. It'll pop up and you can acquire a copy that way. That's probably the easiest way. Um, sometimes people contact me and I will send them a personalized uh, copy, personalized. Uh, the Tall Timbers and maybe Amazon yeah, they have copies that I've signed, but if you want one personalized, I can do that directly, or you can reach Tall Timbers. But the easiest and quickest way for most people is by going to Amazon.com, Amazon Books. Great. Yeah, and I would encourage everybody to get on Amazon or check out Tall Timbers, reach out to Bruce uh, and get one of these. It is well worth the $100. And um, if you wait 10 years, it's probably going to be $250. So um, I would get out there and, and buy one now while, while they're only $100. It, it is well worth it if you're into snakes. It is the book on, on Diamondbacks. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Diamondbacks. So I guess to start, uh, for those people who are not familiar with them, maybe haven't seen one in person, either in captivity or in the wild, like how would you... Uh, describe a, a diamondback. You know, I've, I've talked about them on the podcast here as like one of the largest vipers in the world. We talked about them as the king of rattlesnakes. So how would you, just how do they physically look? You know, what sizes can they attain? Those types of things. Yeah. Uh, remember now, uh, and, and you know this well, Chris, so I, I'm not correcting you. Uh, there are some, there, the Western diamondback is also a diamondback. So we're talking explicitly about the Eastern diamondback, which is quite a different species. Uh, it is big uh, for a snake. In fact, it may be the largest cold-blooded terrestrial animal that lives the furthermost north in latitude on, on the planet. And I've published that and haven't had anybody come back and refute it. Um, but uh, it runs, um, you know, you'll see it, it, what they're, when they're born, they're 14 inches on average. But they grow really rapidly if there's plenty of food available. So within a year, they can be 
36 to 40 inches long. And by the time they get that big, people think, oh, you know, they don't realize they're still looking at a juvenile snake. Uh, the females don't reach maturity until about three years. And uh, males are mature at least by that time. By three years, you've got a snake that if they've been feeding well, uh, that's probably three and a half to four feet long. And look, when people see a snake, and it's also kind of a robust snake. It's not a slender, you know, it's a heavy-bodied sit-and-wait ambush predator. So it's not like a black racer or, well, let's say a coach whip, which if it's that long is a skinny-looking thing. But the eastern diamondback, when it's that long, most people think, oh, yeah, it's the biggest my arm. And it, and it reaches from one end of the road to the other <laughs> when that's not exactly true. But it's <laughs> it's got the classic diamond back, uh, you know, markings. Uh, but here's the interesting thing about its behavior. <clears throat> if you're in the field where this uh, there's a population and you're wandering around, they are not likely to rattle unless you come right up on one and are about to step on it or do step on it. And sometimes even then, I have called it the gentle bend of rattlesnakes. And the reason I think it's likely, it, it, it isn't as irascible as many of the Western rattlesnakes many of them will rattle from a distance, is because the eastern diamondback doesn't really have any places to run and hide uh, easily. It, it lies in the ground cover of, the, of its native vegetation, which was a longleaf pine savanna. And, uh, uh, I, I th you know, why, did, why do rattlesnakes rattle? Well, they rattle to warn organisms, animals that could be harmful to them to stay away. So why doesn't the Eastern Diamondback rattle? And I have a whole chapter in my book about that, how many times I encountered rattlesnakes and, because I knew where they were with my radio telemetry and I never got any, any to rattle. Um, probably because the Eastern Diamondback was so vulnerable to the two-legged predator that showed up about 15 plus thousand years ago that uh, it probably didn't take more than a few thousand years to select animals that were less likely to rattle from a distance. They'll rattle if they're annoyed or harmed or approached, or, I mean, and they realize you're about to do something or could do something to them. But uh, the reason for that is, you know, uh, human beings can get a really easy and quick and delicious good food item by just picking a, a, a switch that's like four or five feet long, a small cut a small sapling and and just whacking the snake behind the neck, behind the head, which will sever its vertebral column. And you can kill the snake and have yourself a wonderful meal for your aboriginal, you know, family, which is what I think caused the eastern diamondback not to be so prone to rattle. Uh, anyway, that's uh, all hypothetical. But, but it is uh, a snake that... Uh, is probably more present when you're in the environment than you realize. And the likelihood of you actually ever finding one or stepping on one is reduced simply because it's cryptic behaviorally, meaning it doesn't tend to rattle very readily. And it's also hugely cryptic um, visually, you know, morphologically. That pattern blends it with the grassland environment it naturally lives in, the, the longleaf pine uh, wiregrass environment so well. You know well that yourself, I'm sure, and you've seen rattlesnakes in nature and realized how they blend. I, I've had people with me when I was doing radio telemetry uh, 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 findings, 
and I'd find the snake. I could see it. I knew where it was, and I'd tell everybody, all right, look around you. Tell me where the rattlesnake is. And, and almost invariably, no one could find it until I said, well, look right over there and look hard. And then, oh, oh, I see it now. <laughs> We, uh, I have a story. I think I may have told it on a previous episode and it's not with, with diamondbacks. It's with timber rattlesnakes up here, uh, where I live in the Southern Appalachians. But, uh, you know, we had a transmitter, um, on a snake and I had a technician with me and we had kind of triangulated it down to this little piece of ground that was no more than like 10 feet by 10 feet. And it was fairly open, uh, with some shrubbery in it and me, you know, I've seen thousands of timber rattlesnakes in my life. That's what the species I work on the most. And so I've, I've seen a lot of them. I have a pretty good sight image for it. I was standing on one side of this 10 foot block. My technician was standing on the other side. We knew it was within it. We're looking, looking, looking. And then all of a sudden I wasn't even coiled up and hidden. It just like appeared to me and it was laid out perfectly straight in the middle of this 10 foot block in the open almost. And I mean, we were looking for a good four or five minutes and it was right in front of me. It just amazed me. I knew obviously that rattlesnakes in general have great camouflage for their environments, but um, that was just that hammered it home for me. So, well, uh, let's talk a little bit. I know know you did some telemetry as, as you've been. Go ahead. Go ahead. Since you mentioned the the uh, timber rattlesnake, you mind if I just take a second to uh, um, pay homage to a dear friend of yours and mine, Marty Martin. Bless his heart. He is probably the him and Bill Brown are the uh, um, most experienced uh, timber rattlesnake biologists. And Marty, at 80 years old, just died from a rattlesnake bite, and it was because he was feeding a pet snake that he uh, that he kept in captivity and you know how snakes when they're in captivity they oh food 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 the snake just lunged at his hand now marty i i assume i don't know the details but i assume he had the rat or whatever he was feeding the snake in a tongs or some device you know he wasn't going to put his hand near the snake but nevertheless the snake came roaring out of the cage and bit him on the hand which led to his death uh, which uh, is very lamentable, and we all, uh, I know, grieve his loss. Had to make the, had to make that mention. Yeah, that was a, a sh- yeah. No, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, we have plans uh, here in the not so distant future to do, um, let's just say, like a little tribute to to Marty on the podcast with with some episodes. Great. But um, I'll reveal that later. But but yeah, Marty, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, in the the world of timber rattlesnakes, he he's kind of one of the the people equivalent with timber rattlesnakes, like you are to diamondbacks. And an interesting story about Marty is that uh, you know I had this quest, you know, growing up in New England, uh, I was always fascinated with the timber rattlesnake, and I had never seen one because they're just so rare in the Northeast. And uh, I won't mention who, but I even finally had it when I was in graduate school studying salamanders. I had it set up with a a biologist up there and we were to meet and I drove two hours at the designated time and place. uh, And this biologist didn't even show up. And, you know, so I went back home and didn't see my timber rattlesnake then. And anyway, so uh, long story short, 
um, I had met Marty um, and I talked to him about my interest in, in rattlesnakes and he was incredibly uh, gracious and he took me out uh, in the hills uh, of Pennsylvania and we spent a day hiking around the ridges. This is back in the 90s again. And uh, we saw two timber rattlesnakes that day. And so he showed me my first timber rattlesnake in the wild, which has become, you know, timber rattlesnakes are a huge part of my career. So anyways, uh, that's a, uh, a huge loss. So um, yeah. thank you for mentioning that. Uh, so back to Diamondbacks. Uh, let's, you, had, you had telemetry. Uh, you did some telemetry studies down there uh, in and around tall timbers. And... Uh, what did you learn about the the movements uh, of this animal? I mean, how how far did you see them moving? Were they using certain types of habitats at certain times of the year? Uh, just curious about anything you kind of learned about their movement and you know habitat ecology. It's one of the more wonderful things about them, and uh, this is something that if the general public had any idea how sophisticated something as quote lowly unquote which most people put snakes uh, were that they would appreciate them like we do the eastern diamondback has all kinds of fabulous behaviors that telemetry revealed um you know the i have in in the book and i when i was doing the field work i I found out a whole bunch of things about them. For one, their ability to know where they are is astounding. Um, and I don't know how they get from one place to the other yet because, and then come back to the spot they were at. For instance, uh, I've had snakes uh, that got a rabbit at the base of a certain pine tree. And then I followed it all the rest of the year and it went, you know, hundreds and hundreds of yards, maybe thousands of yards away from where it got that rabbit. The next year, on the same day, it was back at that same tree, coiled up, just like it had been when it was hunting the, and got the rabbit. So it, it obviously remembered that a year before it got a rabbit. Now, what is the, what are the, well, I assume that's what happened. What is the <laughs> odds of that snake just randomly being back at that tree? The other thing is. Um, let let I, me break uh, also, in for a second, Bruce, and I'm going to, I'm going to. Bruce, let me break in for one second because I before you leave that, I want you to continue. The only thing I wanted to say real quick is I had the exact same thing happen with a Great Basin rattlesnake in the sagebrush steppe where we wow. had it in a feeding posture one season at the base of a uh, big sagebrush. And the next year on the exact same series of days, the animals in a foraging posture there. So just anyways, back to you. But I just, that was fascinating. You said that. Delighted. You said that because it en enhances my feeling about how sophisticated they are and how little we really know about them. Although, uh, you know, we've scratched the surface and got some crude idea about their whole ecology, but the details of how they do a lot of their behaviors is is uh, still to be uh, discovered. Uh, basically, you know, I determined the annual range of uh, several males and several females. I didn't get a full um, inventory of every snake I studied, but I, I had a full one or two or three years worth of information about several several males and females. So I had a pretty good idea on that property of uh, 
what they did in a year's time. One of the one of the other uh, amazing aspects of their uh, um, mobility was that come winter time, you know, November, they all started moving back towards overwintering sites, which usually were stump holes, old burned out stump holes in the ground, where the, I had found them in previous winters. So they they knew where one or two or three um, holes in the ground were that they had spent several different years in uh, at at, at uh, winters in. In other words, they didn't randomly one year be in one series of holes close by, and the next year they'd be off half a mile in a series of other holes. No, they would know how to go back to those holes they had been in before. So that was pretty fascinating. Then uh, I had I had some really cool stuff that uh, went on that I wasn't able to follow up on, and I hope some others do. I I got the idea. Well, let me just state simply: I had rattlesnakes. The males would find a female. How he did it is another another interesting question. And then. This was uh, a male that prior to him making a long move to this female, he'd only moved 100 yards, 5 yards, 10 yards, 60 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards. Then all of a sudden, 1,000 yards, and he was on a female. The next day, I couldn't find him. He was like half a mile away near another female. And two days later, he was back at the first one. How in the blue blazes... That snake got from one. Now, let me tell you about the habitat. The habitat was rolling hills with fairly steep slopes and, you know, flattish valleys. But it was a it was a pine forest, not the longleaf pine forest, but the so what's called a shortleaf loblolly pine forest that's burned annually for quail. But it, and it has very similar structure to the original longleaf pine wiregrass. And this, these snakes have to when they're on the ground. The ground cover reaches up two or three feet high. They can't see out of that. Uh, you know, I've got down on the ground. You, when you're trying to look out of that, you don't know where in blue blazes, you know, you are. You, you can hardly see any trees. You can't see any uh, landmarks to know how to navigate. So, uh, you know, it, it's incredible to think that, well, maybe they laid down a scent trail, but those scent trails would have to last an awful long time and an animal would have to be able to recognize his own scent trail to be able to follow back to places in the past where he had, you know, been before. Anyway, that's one of the great big questions that I think are dying to be uh, discovered. How do they navigate around and know where they are in the field? Because I think the preliminary data we have indicates clearly they really do know where they are in their annual range. And uh, that that's a big, interesting question to be done. That could be worked on experimentally, so it could be really fun. Um, so it sounds like you've seen animals do, you know, half-mile movements. Have you – what's the longest, say, movement you've seen an animal make uh, in, in a day, say? Is that – have they moved, you know, half-mile is quite a distance? Have you seen them move further than that? Uh, 
I just wanted to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Oriane Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orian.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. I think between a half a mile and maybe three quarters was the longest move a male ever made. And it's only the males that made those big moves. Uh, the the um, reproductive period starts in right now in August, late August and September. And uh, the males are now actively out searching for females. The females will make small linear moves like they'll go five yards three yards, six yards, 10 yards, tw five yards, 20 yards, and be still at various different points. And I think what she's doing is laying down a scent trail so that males, when they find that trail, they'll be able to go to where she is. So males are looking for the scent trails. But at the same time, the males, the males who have been making no statistically no differently length moves up until August, then the, the males and females have the same sort of movement behavior until the breeding time. Then the males go off the charts because they're searching for females. And the males burn up lots of energy doing that. You know, they can't, they can't spend more than a couple of weeks making these big moves before they run out of gas, quote unquote, uh, and, you know, don't have enough energy stores left in their fat bodies to enable them to do any more. Whereas the females are, what they're doing is storing fat because they have to put a lot of energy and nutrients to their young. They can't be running around in nature and burning up their energy reserves um, because they wouldn't have enough left to be able to have a decent clutch of young. So all of that's very fascinating biology and uh, needs to be much more detailed and studied in detail. Yeah, you you mentioned ask. stump holes uh, as one of the overwintering uh, locations. Uh, I, I know there aren't quite as many gopher tortoises, say, in, in that part of Florida as there are others, but did you see them using gopher tortoise burrows uh, to overwinter, or was that just not present in your area? No, actually, on my study uh, site, I had about the same number of stump holes as gopher tortoise burrows around 80, 75 to 80 of each. And I've actually published, it's in the book, but it's also a separate paper about the value of stump holes to the Eastern Diamondback. Where stump holes are available, uh, they preferred them greatly over gopher tortoise burrows. Uh, and I think the reason for that might be the indigo snake. You know, the indigo snake loves gopher tortoise burrows and probably was the major predator of the Eastern Diamondback. Uh, there may be other, there may be thermoregulatory reasons um, as well, but uh, overwhelmingly they chose those stump holes on my study site uh, in, in opposition to the, the, you will find them in gopher tortoise burrows, obviously, but uh, when stump holes are available, they, they, at least on my study site, they chose those overwhelmingly and some other places where I've looked as well some of the other plantation 
areas in Georgia, South Georgia, and some of the islands where I studied, where there weren't any tortoises, obviously. They they chose other kinds of, like tip-up mounds, where the tree blows half over or over, and it tips up the roots. They can get into holes underneath or rotting. Um, or uh, go, uh, now the armadillo makes holes that I've seen rattlesnakes utilize as well. So I... I uh, I'm sort of biased in thinking that stump holes are more important than the tortoise burrows for them. Could be wrong. (laughs) Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, uh, so you talked about the energy needs, you know, the males making these bigger movements that that are, uh, you know, energy intense. And then the females more kind of, you know, storing up energy reserves for relative to reproduction. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how they acquire those energy reserves. And so um, what have you learned over the years about, you know, the diet of uh, diamondbacks, eastern diamondbacks, and, uh, you know, what so what they're eating, how often they eat, how they forage, anything kind of in that realm, how they're acquiring this important energy, uh, you know, to, to, you know, relative to reproduction. Right. Uh, I'm of the belief from my work, both in the laboratory as well as out in the field, that the eastern diamondback, uh, its uh, growth and by and behavior are strongly influenced by food. Um, I have captive rattlesnakes that I keep for uh, purposes of uh, doing video filming. And I only feed the adult rattlesnakes, which are like four and a half feet to five feet long, two large um, laboratory rats a year. And they keep fine. They're healthy. They're not the overstuffed, bloated, you know, overfit snakes that you'll find in some zoos. But um, so they, they, you know, they eat. Now, if I were to feed them more, they'd be heavier and uh uh, but out in the field, I, I've noticed that um, uh, I, I had a graduate student who, who, whose dissertation I, is a chapter in my book who did a really classic piece of work. I thought we, we had an outdoor exclosure or enclosure where we stringed off. A, I built him a, a tower where he could stand up and look at the animals on the ground in their natural habitat. And we had meter square string uh, grid so that he knew exactly where the snakes were. And what he did was he would present a food item to the enclosure. And as the rat or the cotton rat ran in front of the snake and got envenomated, he was able to characterize the entire activity that happens from envenomation to ingestion. And what he discovered was first, the snake will envenomate a rat, the rat will run off and die. And the, and the snake engages in what's called a refractory period where it kind of, you know, opens its mouth and readjusts its jaws and its fangs. And then it starts tracking. And the tracking part was really fascinating. It's all part of this eating thing we're talking about. The snakes were extremely good at being able to follow the trail of the animal they envenomated. Now, Greg was trying to figure out, okay, what is it about that trail that the snake follows? So then he would in many in in experiments out in the field after a snake had envenomated a rat and run off he would release another rat of the same kind to run across the trail 
so that when the rattlesnake started trailing the rat he'd envenomated, he might be confused by another rat. Invariably, the rattlesnake followed the trail of the envenomated animal. So then he thought, well, what is it? Maybe it's venom. So he would take ve rattlesnake venom and squirt it across the trail to confuse the rattlesnake. Again, that didn't work. And the snakes went always to the rat they envenomated. So ultimately, uh, it appears that there's something about what happens to the mammal that is envenomated that the snake cues on, and we don't know what that is. Maybe some sort of fright substance, some sort of pheromone that's emitted by having been envenomated. But whatever it is, uh, the snakes are very capable of, dis of, of tracking to and ingesting the animal they envenomate. So what the rattlesnakes do is they wander around in nature, tongue flicking, searching for the presence of potential food. Um, their main foods are squirrels, rabbits, and mice, mammals. And they'll like, if they'll find a tree where a squirrel has been going up and down and there's a lot of scent of the squirrel around the tree, they'll coil up at the base of the tree and face the tree, waiting and just sitting there for days on end till a squirrel comes down within striking range. Or if there's a log lying on the ground, many snakes are known to do this, and you know this well, I'm sure, They'll and timbers do it especially too, They'll coil up uh, rats and, and rodents will run, will use a down tree as a pathway, a safe pathway to run, scurry back and forth rather than walk around in the grass and the, and the bark and the chips and all that where there might be a snake hiding. But the snakes have figured that out by tongue flicking and tasting the presence of those animals on, on, you know, on top of the log. So they'll coil up at the base of the log and they'll face the log with their heads pointing towards the top of the log so that when the rat comes along or the squirrel, boom, he gets envenomated and the snake gets a free meal. Um, I was saying that the eastern diamondback, uh, you know, out west, a lot of rattlesnakes will eat lizards. Um, I found, I, I, I necropsied almost 800 eastern diamondbacks. I didn't kill them, but this uh, tall timbers is located in a about a half a million acre area where big fancy quail hunting plantations operate. And I got those folks, they invariably would kill rattlesnakes. You know, they're out walking around with their dogs trying to shoot quail and any rattlesnake they'd see that could hurt their dogs or them they'd kill or their horses. So, but I got them to um, bag the snake and put it in some old freezers I stuck around in the region and uh, and give the date on when they killed it. And that's how I got my necropsy sample. And out of those 800 uh, uh, stomach contents, I discovered their, the main prey was cottontails when they're bigger, um, gray squirrels, fox squirrels, and the, probably the most important prey for, for all sizes of rattlesnakes was the cotton rat which is a fairly large fist-sized rodent that occurs, as you know well, throughout the coastal plain in those grassland, woodland, hot woodland habitats. Uh, that was its principal food, but also the little white-footed mice, the Paramiscus genus, are also common in their diet. So 
I did have a couple of instances of birds, and I'm sure they would envenomate a bird if one got close to it. But think what's going to happen. The bird's going to fly off and die. You know, snake hits it and it flies and dies. So how is a snake ever going to find that? Now, they may actually, we, and we don't know this, this would be something to watch or put game cameras up to see if you can figure it out. They might envenomate a bird and hold on to it. But uh, I only got like two or three quail ever in the stomach of an eastern diamondback. And one example was a really cool one. I first learned that this behavior on behalf of quails uh, was common when one day I pulled up. I used to check my stump holes and my tortoise burrows by motorcycle, you know, out out on a, a, a dirt bike. And I'd, I pulled up to this tortoise burrow, and I, about six quail come flying out of it right in, right in my face. Scared the devil out of me. They had been down in the burrow. Well, other uh, ornithologists have long uh, recorded that when the Cooper's hawk is chasing a quail, the quail will often fly right into and disappear, disappear down a tortoise burrow. The hawk won't follow. So it turns out I had a snake that had two quail in its stomach, but the snake had glassy eye, you know, uh, gray eyes because it was in in the in the shedding cycle, the ichthysis. So how I got this snake from a plantation. So how did those two quail get in that snake's stomach, especially since it was more or less blind? Well, when I asked the guy who had shot the snake, he said, I shot it outside of a tortoise burrow. Well, I just imagine what happened. The snake is down in the burrow. He's getting ready to shed. Yeah. And and these quail run down the burrow. And of course, they're running all over the snake. So what's he doing? He's inventing <laughs> anything he can. And then a little while later, he, you know, after the other quail fly away and get out of there, he finds, oh, there's these two lovely quail lying here dead, so I'll just swallow them. But now I'm going to go coil up in the sun and, and elevate my body temper and digest these things. And he got shot. So <laughs> at least that, that <laughs> example of a rattlesnake, eastern dynamic eating quail was explained by a rather uh, unusual circumstance. <laughs> That's great. Well, la last uh, aspect of, of Eastern Diamondback ecology I want to talk about before we talk about the, the roundups is, uh, is their life history. When I say life history, which, as you know, is very complex and includes multiple things, but, uh, you know, with timber rattlesnakes, uh, they're a pretty extreme example of things such as uh, maturity uh, you know, sexual maturity in females, you know, intervals between pregnancies, you know, low fecundity, on and on. Uh, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about those aspects of uh, Eastern Diamondbacks uh, life history and, and how we think about, well, let me say like with a timber rattlesnake, we think of them, I always tell people, we think of them more like a turtle than a mouse in that, you know, they're an animal that's adapted to live a long life. They have high survival once they're adults. And if something comes in and let's just say unnaturally kills a large number of them, it can have huge population level impact. So I'm curious the life history of Eastern Diamondbacks in, 
in that regard and how you think of it relative to, you know, what I was just talking about, you know, the untimely death of a snake and how it might impact populations. Right. Um, I, um, based on the 800 that I necropsied, nearly 800, and all the mark recapture animals that I uh, study on several sites, not just tall timbers, uh, I determined, and this is all in the book on this, on, on the chapters related to this, that the eastern diamondback generally um, grows fast, if especially if food is available. And uh, re the females reach sexual maturity in their third year when they have plenty of food available, which is a little different, which is quite different from some other rattlesnakes, actually. And then, but after that, they are unable to sequester enough nutrients and energy uh, to be able to give birth a second year, the second year. So they're on a two-year cycle. And if the food that they uh, need is really uh, uh, low in availability, it can push them to a three-year cycle, the females, after, their, after they've had their first clutch. Um, males uh, probably mature about uh, the second or certainly the third year. And I found that longevity, well, in captivity, Eastern Diamondbacks can live a long time. You know, I think uh, the record's like almost 30 or more. Maybe you know more than that. But so they're capable of living for a long time. Um, but in nature, generally, you know, animals don't live to their ultimate age, uh, possible age. And uh, impacts can be made on them. Oh, uh, here, here's the important thing. I, for your listeners who might be interested in doing snake studies in the future, <laughs> we know almost nothing about that first year in the biology of the eastern diamondback. When they're 14 inches until they become big enough to... Uh, really more readily see in, in the field. Uh, we don't know what they eat. We don't know where they hide out. Um, it, that's, that is a wonderful area for putting tiny transmitters in them, you know, a, a newborn clutch, and being able to find out where every individual goes and how their, new, their home range or their, how their annual ranges, we call them, develop as they get older, you know, so I'd love to be able to start a whole project over to start from birth until, you know, later on in their adult life. But uh, let's see, what else have I covered? Uh, uh, there are places, well, there was a, 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 a peninsula, tip of a peninsula. The base of the peninsula and all the way out almost to the end was heavily uh, developed, so there weren't any rattlesnakes. But the tip of this peninsula had a population of rattlesnakes, and I knew this peninsula tip very well for years and years, never saw a single snake, until I got the permission to do a prescribed burn on it. And when I burned off all the ground cover, my God, there were 10 or 15 rattlesnakes exposed. And they were all very small, relatively speaking, but I could tell how old they were because some still had their natal button on them, which enables you to get some idea how old they are. Uh, and it turns out that they were, they were uh, it was a population of stunted animals. Uh, and, and, the, and it was obvious why, because they were living in a sandy, 
sort of a very sterile coastal environment overwashed by you know storm action and life was not so good for them there uh, i had to um I, I i i didn't i wasn't able to follow that population for a number of years but at least uh, that's where i got my idea that uh, rattlesnakes the eastern diamondback um can tolerate low food availability to a degree um, but uh, by not by by delaying maturity maybe and by also having smaller clutches uh, and being generally uh, uh, I wouldn't say starved but not being well fed as opposed to places where there was a huge amount of uh, nutrient availability lots of rodents lots of rabbits and the rattlesnakes grew like mad and got really big uh, and had short uh, times to sexual maturity. It's kind of interesting that they're somewhat adapted to those variabilities. But uh, but on the other hand, if we get around to the rattle the 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 roundup situation, I'll explain how how um, vulnerable populations are to human depredations. Well, let, let's lead right into that. That's where I wanted to go next. I kind of wanted to um, just leave it, get, kind of have an open-ended question for you talking about how you view the impacts of the rattlesnake roundups on Eastern Diamondback populations. So just, I think, right. just keep going on on the direction you're heading and, and let's, let's talk a little sure. bit about that. Yeah, um, all right. Well, human impacts. One of them is, of course, rattlesnake roundups. And to tell you the honest truth, I, I do not think that the roundups that were um, active in the southeastern United States, that's largely the Wiggum, the Claxton, the, uh, used to be uh, Fitzgerald, and then off Alabama. I don't think they had a huge impact on populations, but I know locally they did because I monitored their um results, both in terms of number of snakes brought into them, as well as uh, the size of the snakes that were brought in. And then the interviews that I, I, I actually attended my first roundup in 19, late 1960s. So I've, I've been to most of those roundups for many decades. And um, when I, when I, when I analyzed the, a 50-year record for all four of those roundups, I discovered that the number of snakes statistically went down. That's in, that's in the face of the number of collectors going up. And then the other thing was, and more, more telling than anything, was the size of the snakes that won the prize for the biggest snake in the roundup. Wow, did that ever dec decline in 50 years? Now that's telling me that the age, because size and age are heavily correlated in this species, the age of the rattlesnakes that were brought in was declining. And yes, uh, we can probably attribute that to Roundup activities because I, I, the data I, was, I generated was from the actual actions of Roundups. But it turned out that uh, the Roundup people from my discussions with them had to start going farther and farther and farther afield over those 50 years to get enough rattlesnakes to bring them in. So what I thought they were doing 
was basically re reflecting the general decline in the eastern diamondback over its entire range where these roundups were focused and not you know yes locally they were making impacts but i th i didn't think the four of them were going to wind up wiping out the eastern diamondback now let's transition to what i think really is the problem i had somebody tell me oh well there's plenty of habitat left for the eastern diamondback they're not declining at all and so i went to the uh, google earth and i First off, I calculated uh, the eastern diamondback is a terrestrial animal that lives on the uplands of the southeastern United States. It doesn't do well in wetlands. So if you could calculate the amount of upland habitat, which used to be the longleaf pine wiregrass, which was over 90 million acres, we now have less than like a million of that, those acres left and they're in bad condition. First off, all the cities in the range of the eastern diamondback their city limits, within their city limits, there probably aren't any eastern diamondback populations. So I calculated all the area that was removed from the eastern diamondbacks habitat by all the cities and towns. Well, that takes uh, maybe 20% of all the habitat that used to occur. And then I did a Google Earth search. Anybody can do this. Go on Google Earth and take a look at anywhere in, North, in the coastal plain of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, uh, and, and, and Mississippi, where the eastern Diamondbacks main range occurs. And you will see huge agricultural impacts. Some places, the center pivot irrigation activity is so dense, the entire half the county is completely obliterated in its upland habitat from any kind of environment that a rattlesnake could possibly tolerate. So I just give a paper on this. Uh, the general actions of roads, towns, agriculture, silviculture, these plans, uh, these stands of planted pines, yeah, everybody's driven around the southeast. After pines get up to be about uh, 15 years old, slash pine and loblolly pine, it's a densely closed canopy with almost no, veg no living vegetation on the ground. And it won't support the rabbits and the rats and the animals that the eastern diamondback survives on. So that eliminates them as well. What you may know, I, a few years ago, the um, Center for Biological Diversity and I joined them, proposed, based on my, my papers, proposed the eastern diamondback as a federally threatened animal. And to be sure, I agree that I'm glad we did that because it has brought to the fore the need for us to really carefully assess the status of the eastern diamondback based on a more detailed series of studies than just what I have done. But uh, I truly believe that uh, it's an animal that's in severe decline, not just by reason of the roundups, but certainly by human um, usurpation of their native environment for our own lives, period. Yeah. Hey, as an aside to that, uh, Bruce, just so you know, we uh, so we are about to hire an Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake ecologist, and we are working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and our role is we're going to be gathering and collecting new data, specifically in Georgia, um, that will go in 
go into the you know the fish and wildlife services assessment of the species and that right. status assessment you're yep. talking about so so we yep. are working on that and anybody who's listening we are going to be hiring uh, a position like that soon so um so it, it sounds like you know what you're talking about is is you know we get these round roundups on the landscape that we're maybe having some localized impacts but the bigger broader uh impact is is you know, really one of the most, I like to think of the longleaf pine, or you just, just say the Southeastern coastal plain as one of the most degraded ecosystems, or at least widespread ecosystems really in the world. And certainly in North America, I mean, uh, you know, people think of the prairies basically being gone, you know, the, the tall grass prairie, especially the short grass prairie as well. But to me, the longleaf uh, pine ecosystem has experienced the exact same thing. It was a wide ranging ecosystem that we've almost completely uh, obliterated or transitioned the function of. And like you said, a lot of people might see pine forests, but a lot of that's, you know, you almost might as well be growing corn. It's agriculture. And, and so in terms of habitat for animals, but relative to the diamondbacks, you have this landscape that's highly degraded, which is impacting their populations. And then you have the roundups where people are trying to gather animals out of this degraded um, ecosystem. And so it probably compounds that, you know, the, those impacts. Last thing I'll say on, on what you just said is uh, I saw you give in a presentation once, I saw you give a, a, that concept of looking at Google Earth. And I can't remember what you said. I think you said pick three places or five places in the coastal plain and you showed some random examples. And I completely use that now when I talk about, uh, especially right. gopher tortoises and indigo snakes, which I end up talking quite a bit about. But I use the exact same thing because it's, it's really true. If you just start picking random places in the southeastern coastal plain on Google Earth, you will be amazed what you see. The only truly large protected areas for the most part, they're primarily wetlands, large wetlands or wetland systems. And uh, so, yeah, it, a lot of the diamondback habitat has, it's, it's, it's gone. So uh, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. And we've been going for about an hour. And I would like to be able to talk about some of the recent work you've been doing in South America and some of the, you know, the, the media and the attention uh, that it's been getting. Uh, but before we do that, is there any, is there any last thing you want to kind of touch on relative to Eastern Dimeback rattlesnakes and uh, the roundups in the Southeast? Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Yeah, um, fortunately, I think we know this, uh, that the roundups have basically wound down. In other words, uh, even Wiggum now, which was the most uh, uh, impactful, even Wiggum now has gone over to uh, in. Uh, snake education and snake and wildlife appreciation. I attended their latest one and it was great just to see people, as many people enjoying the roundup or the, all the other activities uh, uh, surrounding the roundup and l listening to some really great snake uh, presentations. There were professional people wandering around with pythons around their necks, showing them to people. And, 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 you know, it, 
<laughs> it's exactly what you want to see happen. Uh, it was a wildlife appreciation activity. Um, let's see. Yeah, I did want to say one last thing. We do have some properties left in the southeast where uh, presumably you, the, the eastern diamondback habitat is still there, the longleaf environment, national forests, and a few national wildlife refuges. But I want to bring this to the attention of the audience and yours. You probably, Chris, know this well. The longleaf pine and forest, we, we, we know this now from quite a few studies, used to have natural fire cycle on a one to three year basis. And if you've ever managed land like I have, where you do prescribe burning regularly, you find out that the prescribed burning releases nutrients that are held in the dead material from previous growing seasons, and it causes a nutrient flush that stimulates the growth of the next round of plants, which also stimulates the growth of the next rounds of, of herbivores like rats and rabbits and the like. Well, guess what? Most of these federal and state properties where there is some large percentage left of the completely diminished longleaf pine forest are badly managed. They do not burn regularly. They do not burn on even a five-year cycle. And by doing that, they're, even though you walk around in these habitats, you'll see an awful lot of brush. You'll see a lot of tie-tie, which is a kind of invasive wetland environment. You'll see, oh, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's that horrible uh, uh, little mint, um, um, yopon. You see all kinds of things that are locking up the nutrients that would naturally be flushed by a natural fire on a regular basis. That's not happening. And I definitely, I own property, uh, an inholding in the Apalachicola National Forest, which should be prime rattlesnake habitat. And I almost never see an eastern diamondback there. Not that they're not there, but because their densities are exceedingly low, um, I, I, I found the density on tall timbers, which was really good, rich soil and rich habitat, to be about one adult per 20 acres, which was a very dense population. On the, the, on the uh, refuge, I mean, on, on, uh, on these publicly owned lands, I think it's, it's almost at the limit of what rattlesnake population can tolerate. It's down to one adult per maybe two or 300 acres. And it causes the adult males to have to go a lot farther to find females, causes the females not to get as much food as they need to have adequate number of clutches to restore, you know, the population or keep the population maintained. So even though uh, there are habitat, this is something that you guys, whomever you hire, kind of think about that whatever habitats are left, are they in good enough shape that um, just because the habitat, like there's a national forest with X amount of longleaf pine, which is good habitat for the eastern diamondback, but is it now still good habitat because of the way it's managed or mismanaged, I should say? Important item. <laughs> yeah. And we are very uh, tuned into that. You know, um, I don't, I don't think you've ever been up to, uh, what we call the uh, Longleaf Stewardship Center, which is our uh, kind of reserve system. And we, we have our own fire teams and we work with George DNR and others, but, but we do a lot of 
uh, prescribed fire, as you mentioned, a lot of ground cover restoration. So restoring native grasses, you know, harvesting them and right. planting them in places uh, that have been degraded. Right. Um, and then we work with private landowners, training them and on and on. So it's a, you know, I would argue, you know, I think that is one of the, you know, if you're interested in rattlesnakes, if you're interested in gopher tortoises, any of these animals uh, in the Southeast, one of the greatest things you can do for their conservation is is this land management piece. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, great. Well, let's let's kind of start to bring this thing in for a landing here, Bruce. And but I don't want to leave without talking a little bit about the work you've been doing uh, in South America. So, uh, why don't you talk a little bit, maybe, you know, kind of about the genesis of that. And then, you know, in a general sense, what you've been doing over the years, and then maybe, uh, finish up with some of the, the more recent media attention that it's been, uh, getting. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my, my, my basic, uh, expertise originally was the southeastern United States, the, the longleaf pine ecosystem and all the wetlands. So I've studied other snakes, frogs, salamanders and the like. But for a good um, biologist, ecologist, one needs to have some tropical experience. Over the whole history of the earth, there's been more constantly tropical you know, environments, no matter whether we've been in glacial periods or not, there's always some tropical habitat near the equator. So I, uh, long ago, I started doing a lot of travels and learning about the tropics. I've taught a, uh, I was a visiting lecturer in the, one of the OTS courses. And I, I, I got into Northeastern South America where I happened to spot these wonderful things called tepuis, which is an Indian word for mesa. There are these high altitude, they rise up to eight, uh, one of them's up 10,000 feet high. Um, which are big, huge uh, environments, many hundreds of square miles, some of them on the summit, but they're protected by vertical cliffs completely around them. Uh, the cliffs are somewhere, anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 feet. Angel Falls, the biggest waterfall drop in the world, drops 3,350 feet off of Ayantapui. Anyway, so I got interested in that. And I started, I, I've done 33 expeditions now to that region. Part of the reason is it's a wonderful, uh, pristine, unexplored area. And what field biologists wouldn't like to actually have the experiences that some of the early naturalists had in the United States where, you know, you wander around, you're the first person there and you look down, oh, there's a snake nobody's ever seen. Wow, that's got to be a new species. We don't. You don't find that on the planet hardly anymore, although there are a few little places. And this area with these tapuis is one. So in all those, uh, the first the first half of those expeditions were fo photographic and uh, learning expeditions. So I wasn't doing any field work. But the long story is Nat Geo funded me to do a documentary about tapuis back in 2003. And I started doing serious field work in Guyana, where there are a number of these big tapuis that aren't even on maps, for golly sakes. It turns out that, uh, you know, most huh. of them are in Venezuela. And if, if you know about the politics of Venezuela, <laughs> yeah, Americans better not show up in Venezuela right now. But over in Guyana, which is English speaking, they're quite open to, you know, formally allowing 
foreigner, foreign scientist to, under permit, come in and do some research. Anyway, the long of it is, uh, I I have um, just had a wonderful time. You, you don't, I would be doing snakes there, and I am, but you almost never find snakes in the tropics. Although the tropics have more snakes than we have in the temperate zone, they are so secretive and often nocturnal to try to go out and find. I've written a paper on this, and so have some other people. You just don't encounter snakes. However, the one herp you do find is at night with a headlight. Frogs are everywhere. And when you get up into these cloud forests that I love so much, my goodness, you just can't imagine the stuff I've been finding. One of the neat snakes there that's not very well known is the uh, speckled forest pit viper, Bothriachis uh, uh, tineata. I've found a few of those. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're deadly. You have to be careful with that. And they feed on a lot of these arboreal frogs. But uh, I've, in my studies there, I've discovered and named over 20 species of frogs. And right now I'm very excited because a little snake I found on this expedition that Nat Geo recently fun funded and published in their May issue, a whole 38-page article about my work down there. Uh, I found a little snake that we're, we're doing the DNA on it now. It may be a new genus of colubrid. I mean, you know, to find a new genus, a new species is enough, but to find a new genus is pretty exciting too. So while I'm doing a lot of frog and lizard work, whatever I can find, you know, in terms of herps, because amphibians and reptiles is my animal e expertise, you know, I, I'm doing the best I can down there and just have had a wonderful time. But I still hark back here to my, my roots and my love of the southeastern United States, the coastal plain. So, uh, the uh, you mentioned you're working. Uh, you mentioned you're working with National Geographic, and uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the recent article that that came out on the work you're talking about? Yeah, um, I thought that. Well, I these tapuis to get on the summits of them. You really need to do technical climbing if you don't have the money for a helicopter. And so I've teamed up with a really cool cliff climber named Mark Sinnott over the last 20 years. And he and I have, uh, he's helped me. One, he helped me rappel down into a deep chasm that had a, maybe a 10-acre little secret forest in the bottom of it in which I found a wonderful little thing called a pebble toad. Uh, and so. Uh, Mark and I put together a proposal to Nat Geo for me to go down and do a swan song expedition. On because I'm I was going to turn 80 last year. I'm 81 now. Uh, I was all excited about having another opportunity to go, <laughs> go do some field work. And what happens when I'm on these uh, these kinds of filming expeditions? Nat Geo wanted to do a video, you know, that was oh my. Look at all this. Well, of course, the Tapuis are spectacular. But then they got Alex Honnold to join the expedition. And Alex is the guy that did the free solo on El Capitan. So Alex is quite a quite an accomplished, the most accomplished cliff climber. So Alex and Mark and uh, helped me do this expedition. And while we were doing it, 
you know, we had to have Amerindians help us, people that had helped us in the past. So I paid them, look, I'll give you a dollar for every animal, any amphibian or reptile you find and bring into me. That increased my field activity. You know, I'm better than, I must say, I'm better than most of them. But to get them to do it at night in, increased, you know, enhanced what I was able to do. And uh, it, it wasn't the kind of scientific expedition that I would like to do, like have money to go and be in camp at one spot for a month and another camp for two, two weeks. We had to go quickly from camp to camp to camp to climb this thing because that was part of the video production, you know. And, and But yet, in the meanwhile, I was getting all this new stuff brought into me, among which is probably three frogs, one lizard, and this one snake, new to science, maybe two lizards, uh, the uh, gymnophthalmids, the, uh, uh, what are they called? What's it called? Anyway, whatever. It's another it's a family of Central and South American lizards. But um, so that came out as a large article, uh, the lead article in the May issue this year of National Geographic magazine about all my work and about this expedition trying to facilitate me getting uh, an elevational transect done of all the amphibians and reptiles I could find at different elevations going to the summit of a tapui that had never had a cliff climb before. And at the meanwhile, they also were, were uh, video documenting it was some of the most beautiful the, the guys that were doing this had uh, drones, and the drones took some of the most gorgeous photographs I've ever seen of these amazing uh, tapuis, waterfalls cascading down, dozens of waterfalls coming down all the, the cliffs. And, uh, and it was lovely. So that was, that was aired on Earth Day in May on Disney Plus Channel. It's streaming. And anyone can go to Disney Plus and get to see it. It's called The Last Tapui, which means my my swan song, you know, my last tapui. That's why they, that's why they use that term. But guess what? If I can get back down there, that ain't my last tapui. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, before we close, Bruce, I like to have all of my podcast guests tell me their best snake story. I'll let you take it away. Oh, I've had so many of them. Um, you know, I've been bitten twice by the Eastern Diamondback. That was an occupational hazard and all that's out there. Uh, I, I guess, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but you know, I was the first one to find, uh, a king snake that now bears my name in Panhandle, Florida. In the 1960s, I was road cruising in an area and I happened to spot, uh, a road kill. I picked it up and it didn't look like any snake I'd ever seen. I was familiar with every everything in the area I was doing my field work in. And so uh, ultimately I went back, a relatively small area, and I found a few adults and I started doing breeding studies. And I discovered that this unique series of morphotypes was breeding true. And ultimately other people, Kenny Crisco and others, have done DNA and have documented that it is genetically distinct 
He originally named it as a subspecies, then he elevated it to a species. Whatever it is, at least it bears my name, and I'm pretty happy about that, pretty proud of it. But, uh, but the unfortunate sidebar to this is that because it's such a beautiful snake, it brought attention to this population, and hordes of snake collectors have almost wiped it out. I have not seen evidence. I own property in the middle of this area. I have not seen evidence of one of these snakes as either a roadkill or a live animal in almost 20 years. I mean, I've heard of individuals being found. So I, as far as I know, it's not extinct. But this, this, this animal needs to be on the, on the federal endangered list. Absolutely. I mean, it's a population of genetically yeah. unique organisms. Yeah in a small area and it turns out there's another snake in that area that's distinct that's the well and there's 15 species of plants including one genus of lily found in this area and nowhere else so there was some evolutionary activity that went on there including snakes and plants and this area needs to be better protected than it is at the moment yeah that's a fascinating story with a I guess a little bit of a sad ending, but hopefully the, the, the ultimate ending will be a positive one. So, well, uh, I've taken a lot of your time today, Bruce, but, um, I just want to thank you so much for, for getting on here and sharing with us all your knowledge about, um, Eastern Dimeback rattlesnakes and, and beyond. My great pleasure. I'm delighted to do it. Great. And I'm just going to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember Snakes are animals too, and it's a privilege to see one in the wild.